So why would a boutique hub brand buy two wheel brands? What's up, Bike Rumor fans? In this app, I'm talking with longtime friend Alec White from White Industries about their recent acquisition of Rolf Prima and Astral Wheels. We dig in a bit on the strategy of acquiring what were basically their two largest customers and what it means for the future of those brands and their products. We also talk about their business in general and how he has grown into running the company his father started when Alex was just a wee tie. And we kick around some product ideas from past and future. I always love talking to Alec and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Please welcome Alec White. Hey, Alec, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure ch- chatting with you. Um, yeah. You know, as, as a fellow entrepreneur to another, I, I love sharing the business stories with you. And, you know, for all outside appearances, you, know, you are the one running the show. Like, I run into your parents every once in a while. When we, there used to be the Handmade Bicycle Show, but it was always, it's always you that I got the impression was just like keeping the machines turning there and, you know, making everything happen, which is hopefully that's not an offense to your parents. But. <laughs> no. And, uh, I mean, you know, that's, I would definitely not downplay, uh, the help my dad provides even to this day, you know, whether it's he's hands-on or if he's just giving me advice, you know, I don't, I don't turn away from that and don't shy away from asking when I need it. So yeah. How involved is he still? Like, what does he do? And your mom is involved somewhat, right? It's a good story. <laughs> Lynette is not my mom, and oh, okay. uh, Jake is not my brother, and Lynette is no, my dad is. Doug is not Jake's dad. It's very confusing, but uh, it's a common misconception that Lynette's my mom. <laughs> I do have a mom. Um, she's <laughs> oh, she's not directly involved in the company, though. Through COVID, she did lend a hand, either running the automated polishing cell or doing subassembly stuff when we were really busy. She was great. Came in whenever because she's. Um, She's a nurse and older. Both my parents are a bit older than most of my friends. And uh, so she decided to kind of retire early during the height of the pandemic and stuff. So anyway, so she had some time and she helped me. But yeah, so my dad, as far as how what he's doing and how involved he is, I mean, it's definitely changed a lot. I'd say I've been really full time here for 12 or 13 years and um, it's changed a lot from me just running machines to uh, and him being kind of the, the owner operator to me being the owner operator and him running a couple machines here and there or training someone or coming in and helping me with coordinating machine service and just kind of the fixer guy, the guy who's been here forever that really knows his shit that I can say, hey, can you get this done? And he'll, he'll get it done. You know, among a lot of other little roles, I think I'd like to hope he has some time and he can go tinker on stuff but and he does so that's been i think good for him and good for me so awesome well cool i mean congrats on kind of sounds like you you're really more and more just officially you know white industries is yours is it it, was there like an official ownership transfer or is it still you know your parents your your dad still owns it like that's um my dad sure what you want i know it's just kind of like family matters really (laughs) <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, it's it's something where we've got my dad and I have a pretty good relationship. I'm not, you know, I'm happy to to run this without firm, you know, signing and agreements and all that stuff. I think there's a, you know, I'm assuming anything, right? But I think there's a good chance I'll at least get something. I have a sister um, and it's really up to my dad how he decides to divvy things up. But, you know, this, the acquisition of Rolf and Astral, that's where there is some paperwork on there. So, 50% ownership, but 
they'll be 100% running it. So yeah, kind of doing that as more of a partnership, whereas White Industries will technically be his, but I'm still kind of captain of the ship here, for better or for worse for him. Yeah, well, let's, uh, I, I definitely want to talk more about White too, but you know, the, what prompted this interview is the acquisition of Rolf Grima and Astral. So let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, what spurred that? Because you guys had worked together, you know, you you made the hubs for them a lot. You know, they do rims and wheels. And so there was a lot of partnership between the three companies over the years. But what, like, why, why acquire them? That's a good question. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it comes down to timing. The owner was looking to get out for personal reasons, not financial ones. And uh, I think um, for us, it was an opportunity because not only are they, I mean, looking at the books and not getting into details, um, they're one of our biggest customers. So the opportunity to continue doing business with them was very um, intriguing. Also, having some more vertical integration as far as like the wheel goes, right? Actually having uh, wheel building in-house, which is something we haven't really ever done. I think my dad flirted with it in the um, in the 90s, but never as serious as, as what Rolf has done. And um, so I think that was like the obvious reasons to start pursuing the endeavor of the acquisition. And I think from there, learning more about Brian Roddy's, the previous owner, uh, his role in the company, what his responsibilities were. It's, uh, I think, kind of been a long time coming. He's hinted at it in the past. And so it was something that wasn't totally out of the blue for us, but you know, it was definitely him much more serious now. And so it was a situation where I think it just um, kind of fell into piece. The pieces fell into puzzle and yeah, hopefully it didn't fall into pieces. <laughs> no, quite the opposite. I mean, you know, the, it took a while to get everything sorted out and all that stuff. Uh, it was the first time I've ever done a deal like this. And I uh, hope we, we, you know, I'm glad to say we're still friends and we've uh, talked, I mean, besides business outside of um, after the deal. So, so you didn't play too hardball? <laughs> no, I mean, like you were mentioning, we've, we've had a really good relationship with him for a very long time. I mean, I think it's about 20 years now we've been making hubs for Rolf Prima. And I mean, the time I've spent at White Industries being able to work with the engineers up there, like Joel Wilson and, um, and now Willie, it's, um, I've learned a boatload of stuff from them that translated into hubs, but also other design and other just kind of avenues of like how to get stuff done, how to test, how to, how to learn the lingo. And so I, it's really grateful for everything that they've done in, for me in the past and the partnership we've had. And then, you know, meeting the team up there, the GM, Jimmy's great. I mean, everyone there is just, I think, going to be really great to work with. And I think that I owe huge credit to Brian for that. So and that's a big reason why we could move forward with the deal. You know, them being in Eugene and me being in California. If I didn't have that relationship and I didn't trust Brian, it'd be a very different story. Well, it gives you a uh, a nice escape location too. If California just burns and floods, <laughs> yeah, knock on wood, you guys stay safe. But holy cow, lots going on there. I'm assuming you guys are all good and safe where you are. Yeah, I mean there there was some flooding, but uh, not anything crazier than I've seen right on our street. Normally, it gets a little flooded right here, and actually, it's it was um, for luckily it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So right. I don't know good. if it was storm drains cleared or what, but. <laughs> All right. Um, so for the wheels, I mean, most brands, you know, product brands have 
a roadmap, you know, maybe two years, three years out of things they're working on, designs they want to do. Presumably, Rolf has that. I'm gonna, I, I kind of want to focus on Rolf, but we can talk about Astral as much as you want. Walk into that, I'm sure you saw this. Like, are you looking at that and you're just kind of like maintain that plan or are you bringing new ideas and like, well, you know, let's tweak this and let's change it up. Like, what's the, what's the path? I think it's a bit of mix of both, you know, where I think that it, it makes sense to maintain the goals and, and the, the projects that the team's working on. You know, I don't think it makes, it's, it's, you know, this might sound weird, but I don't think it's my place to just step in there and start changing everything. You know, they've, they've gotten established. Um, it's an established company, you know, they, they've, been doing it for a lot, lot longer than I have. And so for me to step in and pretend like I know everything about wheels would be a little not cool. So I, I think it's a combination of continuing the path, but making sure that it fits with what I believe, what we believe down here at White Industries. And I think that those things align. So it really isn't, I don't feel like I have to step in there and, and change a whole lot. I think we can bring value, whether it's making the rolling dies for the new rim extrusion or you know, just providing some manufacturing insight from CNC equipment, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I'm excited to see what we can do and what projects we can add on that we're going to be good at. And, and also, but let them do the, the projects that they're good at. That makes sense. For the people who aren't super familiar, you know, like the quick, my explanation for people would be like white industry machines, parts, you know, you, you're very well known for the hubs. You make other stuff we can talk about a little later, but yes, yeah, so you make hubs. Rolf makes complete wheels and they're kind of known for their paired spoke technology or twin spoke. I, f- I forget which one they call it exactly. And then Astral kind of popped up to, I think, make rims originally, you know, just make domestically sourced or domestically manufactured rims. And then uh, with you guys providing hubs for them, they're able to do complete wheel builds as well. What would you add to that? I'd say that, while I mean, Rolf has the ability just like astral to make the rims too obviously they're not offering paired spokes separately or paired rims paired spoke rims separately uh still learning the lingo but uh i think where astral came in was a situation where just not everyone wants paired spokes whether you know they don't like the look or they don't believe in the technology that's that's a that's up to them and astral is an opportunity for for rolf to branch out and and show what they can do to a lot of customers that aren't willing to buy into paired spokes and you know it's rather than trying to force people to do something they don't want to do look at what we can do for them and i think that was a lot of what astral kind of came out as rims and and wheels i think they you know uh, i don't remember the exact beginning but i'm pretty sure they started offering wheels pretty quickly so while they are doing their rims wheels didn't follow behind and it was an obvious match to have our hubs be an option for sure so very cool. Is uh, in, in Astral, they started at least, I think, mainly with aluminum rims. Are they doing carbon as well? Because I know Rolf does. Yeah. So definitely started with aluminum. The carbon rims are were an option. You know, the exact timing again, this was a uh, company started in 2017. And uh, I don't know exactly when they started offering the carbon rims. I would imagine it wasn't too far behind because Rolf has the ability to roll and and make aluminum rims they also have some drilling equipment which allows them flexibility on the um spoke counts and the uh the spoke pattern of the rim so you can take a carbon rim that would be a paired spoke and make it into a non-paired spoke by just changing the drilling so and that's true for aluminum and true for carbon as well and are they manufacturing the carbon rims as well they are not doing that in-house that's sourced um from uh taiwan 
All right. Is that kind of one of the growth plans to bring that onshore, the carbon production, or is that <laughs> we're talking trade secret level now? Yeah, no, I, um, <laughs> if I told you, I'd have to kill you. No, uh, <laughs> you know, it's something where I'm not, especially at this point, I'm not trying to say no to anything, but it's definitely not in my wheelhouse to come in there and say, Hey, let's do carbon rims. I know how to do it. You know, if, if we're talking about, a a CNC machine component, I can really step in and, and help. So if it wasn't on their plan, me coming in and stepping in isn't going to magically put it on the plan, if that makes sense. Do you guys, because you do a ton of machining at White, like do you have the machinery, the capability of machining something as large as a wheel mold for carbon? Or would you guys have to add equipment to do that? We've got two machines that technically might be able to do it. And I'd need to familiarize myself a lot more with the tooling and what it would take to make it before I said that we can or can't, if that makes sense. I think that there's a lot of expertise that goes into that. And it sounds like it's an exciting project for me. It'd be fun to do. I think it'd be, it would push us and make White Industries a better, better manufacturing company. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for us to do. Um, I mean, we've had Brian's built a relationship with a really good vendor that I think they've had for 20 years, like almost as long as us. Um, you know, they're, they're, Brian has always been a very relationship building person. I mean, he's he's done a great job at that. So I'm not looking to really break down any of those walls that he's built. You know, I think he's uh, walls in a good way, of course, not yeah, br- bridges. Let's say bridges. bridges. <laughs> yes, that's much better. Um, you know, he's he's built all these really great bridges, and you know, for any of them listening, like I'm not trying to burn any of those. I I think it's uh, in my best interest, their best interest, Rolf's Astral's uh, best interest to like keep leaning on the partners and keeping that relationship alive cool i would imagine you know like if you're selling your hubs to rolf and astral that now that you own both there's a there's a level of markup that doesn't be there so theoretically the wheels for you guys could be you know you now you got much better margins on the wheels i mean was that part of the thing was be like look we can take this and you know take their success and all of a sudden it's more profitable by combining the companies it's more profitable but you know are you when are you robbing one company to make the other company more profitable? And and how is that beneficial? I've had this conversation and maybe I don't understand it well enough, but it, it seems to me that, you know, they there's employees up there to pay. There's employees down here to pay. Um, us shifting that money around doesn't make that go away or make that any simpler or better. Like this transition or this acquisition, I think is, well, obviously it's a business decision and we have to make sure that we make money. You know, it's partially like I was talking about, to maintaining them as, as a really good customer and then also expanding our our abilities, right? You know, I do product design and development here. There's an engineer uh, up there, Willie, who does the product design and stuff up there. So adding that to our repertoire means a lot to White Industries because we can then develop better products for our customers. We can hopefully develop better products for their customers. So like, you know, I've always, I, I'd like to, think I'd take a long-term approach and not the short-term gains of like, oh, if we make this company really profitable, but if we're doing that at the expense of Astral or Rolf, it's really not worth it. So you're so each one's going to maintain operations as a st- separate company. They just... Yeah, neither, neither, company, companies. neither company has the space in the building they're currently operating in to like consolidate. Moving, uh, what, are we, what are we at? Like 18 or 19 CNC machines here in Petaluma you know, that can be upwards of 10 to 15,000 pounds. 
is not an easy task and not one that I really want to do right now. Um, so <laughs> ever, <laughs> yeah, ever, if we could avoid it, you know, I, I don't know if there's machine shop listeners out there, but they can probably relate. Um, you don't want to move those things if, unless you really have to. So, um, and again, they've got family, you know, there's employees up there, they've got family and friends and lives. And so do we down here. So I think it's a situation where like, if we can maintain this and this works for us, that's the best avenue in my opinion regardless of like, okay, yeah, we could maybe save some money in rent. We could do, there'd be benefits, no, no question about it, but there'd also be a lot of downsides. You know, if we lose valued employees here or valued employees there, it's can be really damaging. I believe. Yeah, no, I, I get that hundred percent. So, I mean, this is super fresh. Like we're recording this just a, a week, a week and a half after you guys made the announcement of the acquisition. So it might be early to ask like, what's new and going to come of this. So we'll have to check back, but like, is there, some little sneak peek, some little teaser you could share, like, you know, like, hey, throughout this acquisition, we were talking about this, and this is going to be our first cool collab. That's a great question. The first thing you're going to start seeing is us popping up at trade shows a little bit more closely. You know, we have tra- shared trade show booths in the past, and Interbike when that existed. But uh, I, I can't really, if I speak to product right now, which is something I'd totally normally do, uh, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if they'd appreciate it up there. They, yeah, no, they plan things fine. a little better than than I do. I mean, I'm a little from the hip, so. Yeah. All right, Sorry, well, Jimmy. Yeah, no worries. Well, let's talk about white products. So I, I'm I'm curious, like with wheels, right? I, I've kind of wondered this more and more over the years as you end up with more wheel companies. Because I remember, you know, like back in the day when I first got into this, right? Like the dream was you would get like a white hub or a Chris King hub, and then you'd get like Mavic's lightest rim, and then like extra, you know, these like super triple butted spokes and you try and build up your dream wheel build, right? And I know it's still having some, but like now you have so many wheel brands making really killer wheels, you know, I9 and Envy and Rolf and everybody else, right? Like, are you seeing the business shift more toward complete wheel builds from these standalone manufacturers? Or are you seeing just as much growth with selling your hubs to people who want to do something custom? That's a good question. I'd say that, I mean, just the fact of how many wheel brands there are out there and the quality that they're doing, I think that's that speaks to the answer to some to some extent. Where obviously that is popular, people are are choosing that option. But we've got from White Industries' perspective and and Raw or Astral's as well. There's a lot of shops and a lot of wheel builders out there, and um, and they're doing great work, you know. And I'm not doing this acquisition to change that, you know. I think I want to support those those shops doing their thing. Because they're pro- they're providing a really good service that that the a lot of these stock wheel builders or stock wheels can't necessarily do. Like you're saying, if you if you really want something special, you know it's it's harder for the larger the company, the harder it's going to be for them to pivot and make that happen for you. And I'm not saying Astro can't do that, but there's wheel builders that are going to be able to source stuff and, and spend that that really one on one time with you. And I'm not trying to fight them. I'm not going against them. I I, I want to support them with with rims now, you know, and, and provide them the options to them for them to customize to their customer. And, you know, I don't think it makes sense to break those customer relations with, you know, not like trying to rob those customers. They, they exist and they're going to want that extra light tight, titanium anodized spokes that, you know, we may not offer. This bike rumor podcast episode is brought to you by the pros closet. Spring is the perfect time to upgrade your ride from top brands to niche names. TPC has a curated selection of new and certified pre-owned bikes for every discipline. Each certified pre-owned bike is inspected, tested, and serviced by expert mechanics. And every bike includes risk-free 30-day returns. 
Want to save 40 bucks? Visit theprosecloset.com slash bike rumor and enter code BRPODCAST to save $40 on every order over 200 Do you think, because, you know, like there's some hub brands that do a lot of good OEM business. You guys have some of that as well for, yeah, everything from bike brands to other rim brands that want to offer a complete wheel. Do you think that now that you own two wheel companies that are technically competitors for some of these other wheel brands, like, is that going to make it harder to do OEM sales just for your hubs? In general, we don't do a whole lot of OE. That market's been taken up by bigger players and thought about trying to really get into that. And, you know, I'm fairly young and still pretty new to the whole business idea. And I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what our place is and all this. And if it really makes sense for us to to do that, you know, you have to be careful to either A, become really dependent on very few customers or B, work really hard for not very much money. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that's what OEs are going to be asking for. And, and if that isn't really what our goal is, if that isn't going to be what sustains and makes this place a good place to work and to, to operate in. I don't know if that that works for me. So while I like the idea of pursuing OE, and I think it's great to get the brand out there, it's not like hard, fast, this is what we want to do type thing. So I think that for us, OE can be small frame builders. It can be, you know, mid-sized frame builders in the US, you know, or, or abroad. And it's, you know, going after the really large brands. We did that in the 90s and it was great then, but it's great until it stops, until someone has something <laughs> that's... Uh, <laughs> you know, the next cool thing or the, the, you know, X percent cheaper or X percent lighter, you know, it's a, it's pretty cutthroat and I don't know if it's the right thing for us. Yeah. Well, and especially when those machines, like you said, they're not just big, they're really expensive. You know, if you added three or four, what half million dollar machines to be able to make that demand and the demand dried up, you're kind of like, Ooh, now what? (laughs) Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's been, you know, there was a time in the bicycle industry where CNC um, parts were pretty commonplace. Then all of a sudden they weren't. And, um, you know, we, we were able to make it through that. And I think my dad learned a lot of lessons from that. And I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I, I also have learned those, even though I was just a kid. So, you know, and part of that is not taking on too much debt. Obviously, this Rolf and uh, Astral thing is, is going to be some debt. But don't have uh, other machine payments, I believe, or if we do, it's it will be done in the next couple months. So you know, it's like maintaining that level of of debt and not being really careful not to overreach using the equipment you have. And uh, and we've got machines that are almost as old as I am still. So <laughs> very cool. What was the first product White did? Oh, that's a good question. It's a an elastic band that went around your pants to keep your pants out of the chain. <laughs> it's called the Peggers and it was in uh, 1978. There's photos of actually my mom and my dad <clears throat> in the, in the booth. I don't know if it was in Anaheim or Interbike or, uh, you know, that it was before my time, but, um, and then it, it, my dad already had some machining background from an apprenticeship at United Airlines. And so, uh, not long after that, it, came the limbo spider which was to lower your gear ratios bottom brackets for gary fisher and just kind of other job shop work that he started doing around in the industry and uh kind of just developed and blossomed from there but early 90s we were doing cranks too as well as hubs and um you even did a derailleur for a brief period uh, what in the world is a limbo spider 
You've got to explain that one. <laughs> um, I might need to follow up with a picture and I might need to talk to my dad more, but I believe it basically attached and allowed you a smaller cog on the front. So you could go to like, you know, basically your triple or maybe it was a double to a triple or just reduce the diameter of your smallest ring on your triple. You know, this is again, well before my time. I have one. We have one in the case. I think yeah, I we need some pictures of that to, yeah. to put in the, the show notes for this one for sure. sure. I think it might <laughs> even be still in like the like packaging. So it's maybe there's a description on there I'll have to read. It's been a while since I talked to my dad about it. That's, awesome. Lynette, um, that's another thing is like just going back to Rolf and Astral and a couple of their employees been there for 10 or 11 years and um, one in particular and Matt, he's, you know, it's like going to trade shows. We've we used to trade beer and, and bring each other beer and stuff. So, and Lynette who works here at white industry, she's been here for 30, 31 or 32 years. So I, I like to use that as an opportunity to like speak to like the long-term relationships we like to build. And I think Brian at Rolf and Astral is doing the same thing and we want to keep doing that. So. So from the, for the more recent product, or I guess like within the current catalog of products, like what was, what's the most challenging thing to design or what was the hardest project that you guys have launched in the last like 10 years? Probably involved in cranks. You know, everyone complains about headsets, but that was made pretty easy thanks to uh, Cane Creek and their headset identification system <laughs> and having all the specs for all the head tubes and even the cups and all that stuff. So people complain about headsets, but bottom brackets are the problem. Uh, that took, you know, geez, man, those are the bane of my existence for a while, developing that and really just buying everyone's bottom bracket, measuring everyone's bottom bracket, all the spaces that come with it, all the cranks, that, you know, and, and trying to understand what happens. And why is there a two and a half millimeter spacer on the drive side of almost every single crank? Yeah, I wonder that myself. Yeah, that's E-type derailleur mounts. So that's a mount that goes in between the bottom bracket cup and the BB shell and holds your derailleur mount. Uh, hold your trailer, which um, and nobody even uses those anymore. So for I don't even know how long, but every every crank and, and bottom bracket is designed around that spacer. So Jeez. learning those things allowed me to be like, I don't want that in there. Sorry, you know. And you know, anyways, uh, not not important. But <laughs> so I'd does say, your bottom bracket correct for that? Then you don't need a two and a half millimeter spacer on the drive side of our bottom or our cranks and bottom bracket because why do we need that anymore? And someone might know why, and maybe I'm wrong. I haven't run into the problem yet, so I'm pretty happy with my decision. Say it was a safe decision. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'd, I'd say it was a combination of the cranks, bottom brackets, and then the teeth on the chain ring. It took me a while to really develop that because I wanted to do it good and make sure it was quiet and that kind of stuff, um, even when the chain wasn't as lubricated as it should be. And that took me quite a while. I also... I was helped on that, on the MR30, uh, talking about the 30 mil spindle cranks. We'd had the square taper cranks since like 2001, I think. Um, and then square taper cranks previous to that. We also developed a quick release pedal system. That was pretty fun. I built a whole test jig for that, which I later used for the 30 mil spindle cranks. But Whatever happened to the quick release pedals? Um, for it, like you, like as in like your own, like SPD style pedal or like something to make the pedals quick release off of the bike. You'll need to search. Uh, there's a website called bike rumor that has an article. <laughs> on it. <laughs> no. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, so the, you can remove the pedal from the crank arm. So there's a threaded insert that goes on the pedal spindle. And then that insert ties in and connects to the crank arm. We developed that because my dad wanted it. 
Nice. I'm going to look it up, and it's going to be even funnier if I wrote that story and just forgot. Because <laughs> <Who laughs> I forget about a lot of this stuff. It's in and it's out. <laughs> it actually, I mean, I think it's on there. I don't know for sure, but um, that was that was a good one. I mean, I've been really fortunate with everything my dad's given me, and one of those things has been the hub design he created 30 years, 35, I don't know how many years ago, almost 40 years ago now probably, that he designed that has largely stayed the same. Yeah, you know, with very minor tweaks in the early '90s, but since since then, it's the ratchet ring threads that remain the same. The axle diameter size stayed the same. I mean, some of the parts are literally exactly the same, and you could take one off one of those old hubs and put it on one today. You could take one out of the bin today and put it on one of those hubs from the '90s, and it's just been so much easier because I don't have to go and redesign a whole hub when 12 through come, has come out or when micro spline has come out. So the hub. It's just amazing. I mean, the hub platform has been so stable for so long. And I mean, it's limited us to some extent. You know, we we don't have the highest engagement, but a lot of that was due to keeping backwards compatibility. And not to say we won't change that someday, but I know there's a lot of customers that want higher engagement and we hear you. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so the hub platform has been stable and that development is being a lot easier because of it. And then as far as other projects, like I said, headsets kind of fell into line. You can, there's a lot of information out there on what sizes you need and, and that sort of situation. So curious with the, the chain rings, cause you guys have the cranks. Um, are you just making chain rings for your cranks or have you jumped into the like SRAM direct mount compatible race face cinch compatible one buys? It's not something as a brand we've done often. Generally we make components, if that makes sense. So the only exception to that, initially was t47 and because we wanted to have a large offering to really support that um when that came out in 2016 or something another bike rumor um post (laughs) yeah well i'm running one of those bottom brackets too and it's awesome i've had zero problems so thank you glad to hear that i do kind of wonder too though like have you done like market analysis on the aftermarket chain rings because it's like to me it seems like that market is saturated right you have like one up and wolf tooth and absolute black and and then not to mention like SRAM and race face also offered their own and i mean from a weight weenie standpoint they're within like a couple grams of each other right so it's kind of like which brand do you like who has the coolest colors and you know like is there even market opportunity for something like that i would say in general not a lot and that's part of the decision i think we've got a great tooth profile i think we've got something that's that works really, really well. Obviously, I'm biased. I went through like 12 or 13 revisions of the damn thing, if not more. But, uh, well, and if it doesn't compete with somebody's patent, too, that's probably a, that's a win right there, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. And I'd say that it's definitely an area that I'm not, I wouldn't, not going to say no, because I think there's a few real small areas that you could, that aren't being tapped. But I think that in, as a whole, I don't know how strong our brand is that we'd be able to step into that market and really take any of those sales and not say we won't try, but I think it's a situation where for the last two and a half, three years, we've just been so buried in work that the thought of doing anything outside of like exactly what our customers need right now, you know, to keep their doors open, you know, it's, uh, hasn't been the main focus. Is that being slammed? Is that, I mean, honestly, man, I've talked to you for so many years and it seems like you're always slammed, which is awesome. Awesome from a, you know, maybe a revenue standpoint. I don't know about your mental health and sanity sometimes, but yeah. As far as the recent demand, is, is that largely pandemic driven, you think? Or, and is that like changing now or are you guys just growing as strong as ever? 
definitely pandemic driven. It was uh, especially, you know, 70, 80 hour work weeks. Well, not 80, 70 to 75 hour work weeks early on <laughs> in COVID. Oh, no big deal. And I could only do that for so long. And, and, and I had to kind of recognize that I wasn't going to be able to be the Superman and do it myself. So I think that while sales have come back to a much more of like a pre-COVID normal, White Industries is, is maybe not grown because a big focus and something I really wanted to make sure I didn't do was overhire and have to fire people. That was something that I, I really, at the beginning of COVID, decided I, I didn't want to do. So by and large, that's that's been the case. You know, we've uh, we have hired a couple people. One person left; he moved to Montana. So we've, but we've re- remained at the same staff level. And uh, generally speaking, I think we might be up one person. But considering demand was significantly higher, I tried to take a different approach. And and I think that our company has come out not necessarily larger, but much stronger and much better at what we do, which has helped me get to the point where. While I'm, I still am busy as shit. I, uh, I, th- I really feel like we're we're gonna be able to make a lot more progress soon, which is pretty exciting. Because as things have settled back to new normal, that new normal feels slow. If that makes sense. Yeah. Did you just like improve like efficiencies or processes or like what was the what were the big learning and takeaways from having to you know almost double your weekly hours? <laughs> yeah. No. I'd say. A lot of the learning started from a friend of mine, Glenn, who he was running a small business uh, basically across the street around the same time. And they were super busy. They were doing cabinet making equipment and uh, cabinet. All Everyone was redoing their kitchens and stuff. So we were both slammed. And I would sit, we'd socially distance. I would sit and be doing sub-assemblies at like six or seven o'clock at night. And we'd be drinking beer and we would just commiserate and be like this is you know <laughs> what, how, how's your day oh this is what's going on here and and he really guided me towards some lean thinking and uh and just a couple good books and just having those conversations so i think a lot of it has been a big change in my perspective of like we need to focus on training and improving people improving process and um giving people the opportunity to learn and train so you know what maybe took years to get someone developed and trained up on something is now taking months and making that a big focus. And that's just been a game changer for me. I think as the whole ship rises, it's just going to help, help everybody. And that's, that's my goal right now. Nice. Yeah. What were the books? Uh, uh, Two Second Lean by Paul Akers, which, you know, I think it's a great book. I think there's a lot you can learn from it. I wouldn't take everything as hundred percent truth. The other one, <clears throat> which I, had read previous that was given to me by uh, Tristan at Wheelworks in New Zealand, The Goal. And that was that was a really good book. I think it really took two reads for it to, to sink in. You know, it's like, ah, oh, that doesn't apply to me. And then I read it again. I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> that totally applies to me. And uh, there's been a couple others that I can't think of off the top of my head. Oh, The Effective Executive. That's another one that Glenn gave me. That was a pretty good book. And I think uh, for me, it's, you know, time management, it's investing in your people, it's trying to make the place simpler. It's, you know, and I haven't always been successful. COVID has changed a lot of things. And I think at one point we had up to like 800 orders on back order. And, uh, you know, being able to manage, we've got 5,700 SKUs on our website. And uh, so managing inventory on that is uh, kind of a bear. And to say that we, you know, we don't have a live inventory. 
So like if you ask me what's how many of something is in the bin out there, the only way for me to really know is to walk out there and count it. And I don't plan on changing that. You know, it's driven by Kanban cards. It's driven by the system. And, you know, I, I, I look at that as like I could hire someone and we could have someone manage inventory all the time or we could build a system where we don't need that person. Right. And we could build a simple system that keeps things in stock. And by listening to some of the stuff in the goal, regardless of whether I want it to or not, you know, our lead times are going to be shorter than ever. We've reduced our production batches by, I think, close to 70, 75%, which has allowed us to turn around product in a fraction of the time. So um, I think my best example is, let's say you're making chain rings and you've got 26 sizes of chain rings, right? Uh, 26 different configurations. Maybe that's boost, non-boost, tooth sizes, right? 28 all the way up to 48. So you got 26 sizes. If you're doing batch sizes that take two weeks to run, how long does it take you to get the last chain ring? Two weeks. It takes you a year, 52 months. Oh, no, per sorry. size. I, sorry, not two 52 weeks months, per, sorry, or, or 52 weeks. Sorry, it takes you one year. So two weeks per iteration, geez. Yeah. Right, which is like completely unacceptable. You, you That would be, you know, but it's super efficient because you're doing large batch sizes. Right. So um, a situation where once you can, Except that doing large batch sizes isn't the best way for the customer, right? And that was a huge focus change for everything we did in COVID was like, is what's better for the customer? Yeah, this is going to be really problematic if we put as much as the product we can in a box and sit it on the shelf and put their name on it. And that's going to sit there as long as it takes until we get that other product. And yes, we could steal that crank, give it to another customer, but like that wouldn't be the best for the customer to place order first. And so, you know, a huge focus was like, how do we manage these back orders? How do we make sure that our lead times are correct? How do we make sure that when something goes awry, we contact the customer? How do we make sure that when the customer calls and asks, we give them that that knowledge and that information of what they need so they, they can go to their customer? And that was just a huge focus. It changed everything we do. And so it's like, yeah, we can save some time on setups. We can by running huge batch sizes. But all we're doing is amortizing the waste that's in that setup over more parts. We're not looking and focusing at the problem. And that wording I just learned from a different podcast. I don't know if that's fair to plug another podcast, but um, Austere Manufacturing, they make cam buckles. And, and I believe it was him, the owner, was explaining that. And I thought it was just a brilliant analogy of, of what you're doing when you've, you focus on saving the cost by putting it over so many parts when all you're doing is just delaying the next part. Yeah, it's interesting. I've never, never thought about it that way. So that's really cool. Love it. What are you most excited about next? Like, you know, is there something you guys are working on, whether you can talk about it or not? But like, so what's got you uh, super hot and bothered? Might sound weird, but uh, testing equipment going along with the lean and the the idea of like reducing setup times and, and, and those those kinds of things. It's like focusing on iteration delays and, and new product and, and that kind of change. We recently got a 3D printer, which I hesitated on for a very long time as I thought, you know, 3D printers, I don't need a plastic prototype. I need, I have CNC machines. I can just make the part. But what I was failing to grasp is that, um, and what I recently, why I bought it is I did not buy it to make a prototype of a part. And that might become a, a use, but I entirely bought that 3D printer, not expensive, relatively speaking, just to make fixturing and little doohickeys that are going to hold tools and make processes better. And so what I'm kind of excited about is uh, with having the extra engineering 
and the testing equipment that Rolf already has is by adding on to that, taking that old crank tester I had and revitalizing it and making it really good. And then improving and building other testing uh, equipment will allow us to iterate our designs faster and make improvements and bring new product to market faster and have a better product. I mean, at least that's the goal. Um, so that, that gets me excited. That's awesome. That's cool, man. I love I love the geeky little things, right? Like oh, that man. when I'm you're a- when you're deep in the weeds and then you figure this little thing out, it's like, oh yeah, so cool, right? And everyone else is looking at you like you're weird. <laughs> no, I'm super nerdy. <laughs> uh, fully admit it, geek, nerd, whatever you want to call me. I'm happy to accept it. You know, I through COVID, we we separated, isolated a lot, and um, I don't know if this is getting too off topic, but. Speaking of little nerdy things, we were passing paper around for a long time for a production, right? Here's our work traveler. This is how many you make, all that stuff. And that became pretty infeasible when you're trying to keep people separate and you're trying to maintain or reduce contact. So if someone gets sick, you don't wipe out the whole company. So going to like an online, I don't know if you ever used Trello, but uh, that is our entire production schedule at this point. And I, we add cards to that via QR code that you scan into a Google sheet. And then that's connected and adds a card with all the information, adds a drawing, all that stuff. We can continue to develop that, add technical docs and, and all kinds of setup and stuff. So, Do you think you would even look for a solution to that? Like had the pandemic not happened or? No, definitely. We just I kept mean, doing it the way you're doing it. No, no, we're, we're, we're coming out of this so much better. I, th- I think, I mean, I like where we're going and that, that gets me excited. I hope that at least a few people here <laughs> are excited too about that, you know, and that I don't drive them crazy with all my little like, oh, we could do this better. We could do this better. You know, I'm, I'm never, I mean, I'm happy, but I, I think that there's always improvement and uh, I get excited for that. No, I hear you, man. We, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording about how, you know, like I sold Bike Rumor a couple of years ago now and yeah, I'd gotten to a, to a point doing it the way I did it, and then I didn't know what to do next. And yeah, the new owners have implemented different systems. That at first you're like, oh, I got to change what I'm doing, and it's like everyone's like, ah, you know, or probably it was just me grumbling. But yeah, the reality is, where there many of them were good processes, right? It's more efficient, it's easier to see what everybody else is working on, and yeah. So sometimes it's like that that little you need some kind of painful nudge to do the things that probably should have been done long ago so yeah i think it'd be, i hear you i think it'd be uh pretty pretty dangerous if it was easy to move cnc machines i'd be reorganizing the shop all the time <laughs> uh, I've, I've reorganized our assembly probably four or five times during covid and uh, maybe sometimes little things sometimes complete rearrange every every table and desk is moving every workstation's changing and people walk in they're like what yeah it's like what it, would you do over the weekend you know <laughs> what, what were you doing it's like, I, I they're gonna put, they're to, gonna change the locks on you <laughs> Yeah, no, seriously. Um, and, you know, going from pre-assembling stuff, every every assembler having their own station that would assemble everything to now it's uh, workstations that are really developed just for the processes that they're doing, which allows us, you know, everything is assembled to order. Um, we don't we don't put one product on the shelf that's pre-assembled, except sub-assemblies. So, um, like, if you ask for a hub, it's not built, period. You You have to go build it. So, and same with cranks and bottom brackets, headsets. Every time you place an order, that bearing is getting pressed in. It's not already done. Awesome, man. Well, I know you're busy. I don't want to hold you up. Anything else you want to share about the acquisition or anything else on your mind? Or You know, um, someone's going to mention something after I get off this and say, you should have talked about this. You should have talked about that. But, you know, I, I think uh, I'm just, I'm excited. I think it's going to be, I hope it's really going to be really good. And I hope we can uh, continue to, 
do what we're doing and continue to make that better. So, well, you guys already do a really good job with the products. So excited to see what's next. Appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.